0: Amen. Amen. Just really trying to pray how do we pull together all of chapter 5 in one idea. And I think it really is this. I don't know if you've gone through a season in life when you mistakenly invested in something, right? Maybe you saw something, you thought this is an incredible investment and you put all of your investment there only to see it completely flop, right? Uh, I think it was a year or so ago, right, you had uh, stocks, uh, GameStop and AMC and you're, maybe you're thinking it's going to the moon, right, it's never going to stop, it's never going to come down and you mistimed your investment and it completely flopped. Uh, for some of the young adults here, again, praying for you guys, feel for you guys, you're looking at the housing market and say, man, I should have bought a house. A year ago, two years ago, right? What would it be now? And the whole idea of what worship is it's ascribing worth to something. It's ascribing worth to something. And if you're here and you've spent time right, living in the world or for the things of the world and you're on the outside of that, you've realized you spent time ascribing worth to alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever the case may be. And on the other side of that, you see what a terrible investment that was. How you invested time, energy, money, and your life in it. And all you have to show for yourself, it's the wages of sin, which is death. And looking at Revelation 5, it gives us a moment to see the true worth of Jesus Christ and of ascribing worth to Him today. And that is an investment that will never return void. I think that is an investment that many of us who are older, who have gone through the hard knocks of life, wish and desire, we could go back and change where we were investing our time into. And we would tell anyone younger than us, hey, put all your worth in Christ as soon as possible. I think that's what we should see here. We can be spending time and really wherever we're putting our time into, and wherever we're putting our money into, our mind into, that's something we are worshiping. We think, hey, I'm, I'm giving worth that if I spend time in this social media, it's going to somehow give me a benefit. If I spend time going out fishing, it's going to somehow give me a benefit. Time in this relationship, time in this job, money and time, we are ascribing worth to something. So who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And there's only one person one being one God worthy of our worship it's good for us to be reminded that we are still in the context of everything that John saw in chapter four originally the book of Revelation there wouldn't be a chapter break here this is just makes it easier for us to turn to certain portions of scripture but chapter four and five would be there together with one another So to be reminded, we are still in the midst of this barely imaginable throne room. This throne room that we can barely ascribe human terms for us to understand and comprehend. At the center of this throne room, there is this throne drawing John's attention more than anything else. That's the first thing that John's attention is drawn to. And he can't describe the being that's seated upon the throne. The only thing that John can describe is just the radiance and the glory that's being emitted from the throne. It's as if the clearest diamonds and the clearest rubies were shining in all their brilliance and there's just this glory of white and holiness and red and crimson shining from the throne. Around the throne, the second thing that John sees is a circular emerald rainbow Around this throne, again, the eminence, the glory radiating out of it. And the throne, the floor of this whole throne room is clear like a sea of crystal. Around the throne, we have 24 thrones and 24 elders representing the church and all of church history. And there's also these four strange creatures that we really can't describe, but John does his best. He says, one is like a lion. One is like a calf, the third is like a man, and the fourth is like a flying eagle. These are cherubim. We looked at other scriptures pointing to that, and each of these cherubim have six wings. Each of them have eyes, not just two eyes, but they have eyes all in the front, all in the back, and inside of them, within them. It says they have eyes all around and within, pointing to their ability to see through everything. And these six beings never rest from worshiping the one who is seated upon the throne. So again, we're still here in this throne room. But here in verse 1, chapter 5, John says, He saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. This is a very important portion of scripture that we kind of need to leave our intellect behind and take it by faith. Because John is describing something outside of our dimension, outside of our ability to fully comprehend. And oftentimes in Scripture, God is given human characteristics to make it easier for us to understand Him. But God is not a human. God is, we're made in the image of God, but He Himself is not human. We are image bearers, but he is not human. If we could completely comprehend God and all who he is and all his being, then we would be gods ourselves. But again, the holiness, the separation of God and creation, creator and creation. If you have a New King James Version Bible, you could see that word hand is italicized, showing that translators later added it so we could better understand what's going on here. And here you got an SAT word, if you needed an SAT word of the day. And the word is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. And anthros in the Greek is man. And morphe is the word in the Greek form. And there's different terms throughout Scripture where God is referred to by human characteristics so we can understand Him better. There's the, we're going to look at it later, right? The scripture, God's eyes are looking to and fro throughout the whole world, right? It's not that God is legitimately like scanning through the world looking for someone. It's giving us an idea of what this means so we could better understand it. In Psalm 50 verse 10, it says, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. This is where we get that idea. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, But I don't think any of us here this morning believe God is a rancher in heaven, right? With a thousand hills and he's out there with his cowboy hat gathering all the cattle together. This is a word picture for us to understand. God doesn't need anything from us, but he owns all. And you're going to get a lot of that in the book of Revelation, a lot of that in the Bible. Sometimes we can get hung up on these things. But we go back to verse 1, right? In his right hand, upon his right hand, that word of P, he has a scroll. And in that scroll, it's written on the inside and on the back. And it's sealed with seven seals. So once again, God, we don't see him pacing. We don't see him worrying. We don't see him anxious. He's there seated upon the throne. And there upon his hand is this scroll. It's a parchment paper or animal skin. And it has writing on the inside and on the back and now it's sealed with seven seals. I don't know if you've ever received one of those fancy wedding invitations right and on the back there's a piece of wax with a seal on it. That's what it's mentioning here that this scroll it's an important scroll because it's been sealed not just one time but seven times over. So this scroll would be opened top to bottom and they would turn it and continue reading it, and it would continue passing through reading it. You could think of scrolling on your phone. They'd scroll through the scroll, right, if you would. And as they would do that, this scroll would be sealed seven times, one of two ways. We don't really know. The scroll is not the main topic of this chapter. It's the one who's able to open it. So either it's a scroll and has seven ropes around it with seven seals, or it's a scroll that's been wrapped and then sealed, and then wrapped, and then sealed, and then wrapped, and then sealed. You have a burrito, right? Or a crepe, or something else, right? And it's been sealed seven times over, keeping it together. But again, the book of, the, of Revelation is not the revelation of the scroll. It's not the revelation of the end of times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's the most important thing for us. We are taking a super in-depth view of each chapter and each verse. But it's important for us to not get so close that we're losing the big picture and what this is all about. It's all about Jesus, us seeing who he really is, right? Sometimes we only look at a specific portion of Jesus and that's the only Jesus we have in our minds. Right? If you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you're the only picture of Jesus is this handsome guy with long brown hair, right? He's got his perfect white robe, blue uh, sash, and he's there on the flannel board with little lambs, right, and little kids, and that's the Jesus you have in your mind. Some people, maybe you grew up in a very religious home or very Catholic home, and the only Jesus you picture is him stuck on the cross, bloodied and bruised. But that's why revelation is so important because this shows us How Jesus is today, right now. How he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's in the throne room of heaven. He's there with the throne room of God, waiting for God's timing to come and gather the church, then open the scroll, and then God's wrath to be poured out. There's lots of ideas as to what this scroll is. Something is the Old Testament, something is the New Testament, something is the book of Revelation. I think the best explanation and interpretation is that this scroll is both the property deed to earth and the final will of God. The property deed to earth and the final will to God. You could just write down Jeremiah chapter 32. Don't have to turn there. Jeremiah 32, 11 through 15 Write it down for homework. This gives us the best picture of Jeremiah purchasing a deed to a property and seeing it being sealed so that later on he'd be able to come back and buy and use this property. William Barclay, he says the best solution is to see the scroll as God's will. His final settlement of the affairs of the universe. Adam Clark, he says, The book may mean the purposes and designs of God relative to his government of the world and the church. But we, whose habitation is in the dust, know nothing of such things. We are, however, determined to guess. It's important to take that humble perspective at times as we're going through Scripture. There are many things that are plain, black and white, easy to understand. There are other things that we need to take a step back and say, I'm just dust. If I could understand everything of Scripture, I would be like God himself. I don't know about you, but I know I'm definitely not like God himself. Then in verse 2 it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll, or look at it. Again, every angel is strong. Every angel is powerful. And yet John says, all of a sudden a strong angel comes forth, right? And now he proclaims with a loud voice. Again, heaven's going to be loud. It's just the type of place it's going to be. But this angel with his strength and with his loud voice is able to pierce through and reach every being in heaven, Every being on earth and every being in Hades and hell itself. And he comes with a challenge, if you would. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And as that proclamation, that challenge goes out to all of heaven, all of earth, and all of hell, no one is worthy to open the scroll, much less even look at it, right? They're not even worthy to look at it, to open it or loosen its seals. And again, the context, we have the four cherubim here, these four incredible beings, and yet not one of them is worthy to open the scroll. The 24 elders are there, and yet not one of them is worthy to open the scroll. The host of the angels are there, yet not one of them is worthy to open the scroll. The Archangel Michael, the Archangel Gabriel, they are there and they are not worthy to open the scroll. Our heroes of the faith, Abraham, he's there. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, King David, even Peter, Paul, your favorite disciple. And yet none of them are worthy to open the scroll. There's only one, right? We we sung about him earlier. But we can think of all the men, all the women in history, and yet not one of them is worthy to open the scroll. Two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of worship. It's worthship. You're ascribing worth to something, and that's why you begin to worship it. And this should remind us the only thing in all of history worthy of our worship, it's Jesus Christ. It's not our kids. It's not our marriage, it's not our job, it's not our hobbies, it's not our favorite artist, our favorite musician, our favorite athlete. The only thing in all of history worthy of our worship, it's Jesus Christ. And that's a worthy investment. That's not an investment later on you're going to be banging your head against the wall saying, what in the world did I just do? Verse 4, John says, so I wept much Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And to be reminded of John, he's been taken by the Spirit to this place. So it could either be he's taken by the Spirit into the heavenly realm right away. Something he's taken into heaven and then in a sense almost like a time machine is taken to the time and place when Jesus is going to take the scroll. But you got to think John is trying to be incognito here, right? He's not trying to cause a stir. He doesn't want anyone to realize he's there. He's trying to hide in the corner, if you would, play the background. And yet hearing that no one is found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it, John can't help but begin to weep. And in the Greek here, it's to weep uncontrollably to begin to sob in convulsions, right, and shaking. I don't know if you've ever gotten and received such terrible news that you begin to weep uncontrollably. If you've been there when a wife gets the knowledge that her husband has died, right, just automatically, she can't help it, she begins to weep uncontrollably. And this is what grips John's heart, trying to be in secret, trying to be incognito, trying not to have any of the many eyes of the four creatures looking at him, right? He can't help but begin to sob and weep uncontrollably. And I think that's what ascribes the value to this scroll. It's not just the book of Revelation. It's not just the end of Revelation chapter 6 through 22. This has to be the power to rule and reign over earth or to rule and reign over the principalities and powers of the earth. This has to be the one thing that will finally destroy sin and death and crying and weeping for all of eternity. This also has to be the will of God, because when you truly love God, you desire to see more and more of His will in your life. Matthew Henry, he says, Those who have seen most of God in this world are most desirous to see more of it. And those who have seen His glory desire to know His will. Friend, how often do you desire to know the will of God? How often do you desire to have God's will happen in your life? Do you truly pray as Jesus prayed, Lord, not as I will, Lord, You will? Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the more you love him, the more you're going to desire to see and know his will. The more we see his glory, the more we're going to say, Lord, I want what you want to happen in my life. The more our desires are going to line up with his desires, the more and more we know him and see him. You could think of Moses, every time he sees God's glory, he asks for a little bit more. Can I see more? Can I see more? Can I know more? Verse 5, John's weeping uncontrollably. He's sobbing. And verse 5, one of the elders tells him, snap out of it, right? Stop your crying. He says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Again, it's not one of the angels that's able to comfort him. It's not one of the cherubim that's able to comfort him. It's another church leader. It's another person of the church. Someone who has felt and known the weight of their sins being taken away from them by the Savior of humanity. He comforts John and then he reveals to him the worthy conqueror. And there's only one worthy conqueror. He says, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. You could just write down some of these. I won't read through all of them. But Genesis chapter 49, verse 9 through 10. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 4. And Hosea, chapter 11, verse 10, Genesis 49, 9 through 10, Isaiah 31, 4, and Hosea eleven ten, all speak of God as this lion. In Genesis 49, verse 9 through 10, it says, Judah is lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Again the power remains in the tribe of Judah until the moment that Jesus comes. In Isaiah 31:4 it says the Lord has spoken to me as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey. Finally Hosea 11:10 says they shall walk after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. Again our conqueror he's worthy. He's a worthy fighter, right? A worthy king. John Trapp, he says, the lion is a fitting image of our Messiah for the excellency of his strength, for his heroical spirit, for his principality. He, the lion, is the king of the jungle, the king of beasts. And finally, for his vigilance. Again, is he not strong? Is he not our greatest hero? Does he not have principality and power? And he is ever vigilant the second term here or nickname here given to jesus is the root of david and this is something from of old since isaiah has been prophesied in isaiah 11 verse 1 and in verse 10 that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots Verse 10 says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. You could turn to Revelation 22, a couple pages to the right there. And in Revelation 22, Jesus uses this same title for himself. Revelation 22. Revelation 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Again, he is the root of David. David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he says, I am the root of that. I am what brought forth David, and I'm also his offspring, This shows us that David was not just, uh, that Jesus was not just a rando from the lineage of David, right? But he's the very root of it. He's the very origin of David. I know there's some people they get caught up in knowing their lineage and their history, and they paid money for these DNA tests and all this stuff, right? It doesn't make any sense to me, but you can do your thing, right? And you find that, man, I'm from George Washington's lineage, right? You say, big whoop, right? Congratulations, not a big deal, right? But to be able to say, I am the root of George Washington, George Washington exists only because of me, that would be something completely different. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you go to Matthew 22, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is the last time that the Pharisees begin this game of riddles with Jesus because Jesus is a lot wiser than they are, and he can stump them. They try to stump Jesus over and over again. He always comes on top. Then he asks them a question and they don't know how to answer, how to respond. And in Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46, some scholars think this is what Jesus is asking the Pharisees as a, as a young boy in the temple, that all the Pharisees are, and the priests are saying, what's up with the wisdom in this little kid as his parents lose Jesus, right? But in Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46, it says, while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Again, Jesus has always existed. He, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. They've had that agape love just always They've always existed. They are God, right? The Trinity. And he's always existed. So David comes from him. But then one day when he humbles himself to the point of a human being, he comes from the lineage of David. A.R. Faust said, he says, He is not called merely son of David, but he's David personified. He is at once the branch of David and the root of David. He's David's son and David's Lord. He is the lamb which was slain. And therefore the Lion of Judah about to reign over Israel and thenceforth over the whole earth. You see, we need both the Lion and the Lamb. We need both. We'll see that in a moment. But back to Revelation chapter 5. He continues, this elder giving John the good news. Telling him, hey man, don't worry. Quit your crying. Stop it. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. He says that he's, right, the Lion from the tribe of Judah. He's from the root of David, and then he says, He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. He has prevailed. He has conquered. He's conquered everything. He has gained the victory over all sin, over all darkness, over all evil, over every single power of darkness. Again, it's a little humiliating when you put all of your eggs in one basket to conquer or win and they completely lose or fold, right? Every year in sports, there's some guy, you never know if it's real or not, right? They get a tattoo of their team as a Super Bowl champion or something like that, right? And how embarrassing, right? How embarrassing. It goes to many levels, right? But However, Jesus has prevailed. He has conquered, and will forever continue to conquer. So where are you ascribing worth and worship to? Is it in another human being? Is it in, again, drugs, sex, alcohol? Is it the fear of men? All of your worth is just plugged into social media, into this alternate world. And you're thinking this is what's going to help you conquer all these fears, all this anxiety, all these troubles in your life. Only one conquer. It's Jesus Christ. He has conquered, and now he's able to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So, John is thinking of this conquering lion. We're here thinking word picture, right? This conquering lion. And yet, John looks in verse 6 and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. A lamb? Again, that's where if you just try to go to God through intellect, it's going to fail you. You're going to burn out. He is the lion and the lamb. Are there not two greater opposites there, right? A lion and the lamb. I don't know which was the last sports team that was known as the lambs, right? Here we go, right? LHM lambs, right? We don't even do that. We're a church, right? We don't even do that. Again, it's not a term of power. It's not a, power, a term of prestige. It's not a term of great strength. But as the lion, he came came down as a lamb for us. Again, we need to realize the full picture of who Jesus is. He's not just a lamb and he's not just a lion. And here the word lamb is very specific. It's not even a big lamb or a strong lamb or the king of lambs, right? It's not a lambo or anything like that. Here in the Greek, it speaks of a little, delicate, precious lamb. It's just, again, endearing to us. He's, he's not just there dead on the floor. No, he's standing. He has both power and our sympathy. That's what David Guzik says. He is living. He is standing there as the lamb. And yet he still has the marks of previous sacrifice upon him. As though it had been slain. There's something that's so dangerous to us. Has the death of Jesus Christ for you become stale? Is there just apathy in your heart when you hear of Jesus Christ suffering for you? Bearing his sins upon you? Does that just affect, it invokes no emotion in your heart or in your mind? Does that not break you, right? When we sing the songs that he ransomed his slave and you don't right away think of yourself and all that he has paid for you? Friend, family, be aware if the cross has grown stale to you alarm should be going off in your heart if the cross is stale in the lives of your sons and daughters alarm should be going off in your heart it has not grown stale in heaven every time someone looks at Jesus Christ he's bearing the marks they look as fresh as they ever have it should be fresh it should be current to us it should invoke and affect emotion within us We talked about it two weeks. Some people say, oh, I can't worship because I'm not very emotional, right? also That's a lie. We've seen you, right? We've seen you watching a football game. We've seen you losing that fish right at the boat. We've seen you. We've seen you the 401k going down. We've seen emotion come out of you. There's just not that great of an importance in your heart and mind when it comes to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. With the youth, I used to tell them, who did Jesus die for? They go, oh, the whole world. I go, yes, but no, he died for you. He died because of your sins. He died because of my sins. Lots of times we like to think of that on a macro aspect so we don't take ownership that he died because of me. That that should affect us. I know that affects soldiers when they have another brother or sister die taking their place. It changes their lives forever. They named their kids after the soldier that sacrificed their lives for them. I know one of them, right, in his books, the heroes in his books are those different soldiers that sacrificed their lives. How does the death and sacrifice affect, uh, affect us? And it's not just a bullet. It's not just a grenade. It's not just a quick or accidental or something that just happened. No, from the foundations of the earth, Jesus decided, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to put on human flesh. going to become a little baby. I'm going to have to learn how to walk, how to use the restroom, how to talk. I'm going to be beaten and bruised by them. I'm not going to come in as a king. No, I'm going to be born in a stable, in a barn. I'm going to be raised not in a rich home, but in a very poor, humble home. And they're not going to appreciate me. They're not going to love me. No, instead they're going to beat me and bruise me. Rip out my beard. They're going to put me in jail. They're going to put me in prison. They're going to falsely accuse me. And they're going to kill me. This is what he planned. Sacrificing his life for you and me. Again, this should affect us. This should never become stale. There should never be empathy in our heart. Thinking of Jesus Christ dying for us. Marking. Showing the marks as though he had been slain. I've heard the idea that the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on the body of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the only man-made thing in heaven and it's to remind us of the price, the cost of our salvation. And I don't think Jesus is going to use it to shame us or guilt us. I don't think we're going to be in heaven and like, ah, I'm kind of bored today. He's going to like, sort of like start rubbing his hair right or try to show us that to guilt us or make us feel bad. I think it's to reveal to us how much he loves us. How much he loves us. How much he cares for us. In Matthew 13, uh, verse 44 through 46, Jesus gives two parables that point to this same idea. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. What was the the price for God the Father to be able to redeem you and me? It was everything. His only begotten son. So again, that's why it's, it's just a terrible look when God is asking a little bit more from us and we're saying, God, I can't give this up. I can't give up this hobby. I can't give up this boyfriend or girlfriend. I can't give up this job. I can't give up this thing that I'm enslaved to, right? I can't give up this liquor or this pornography. I can't give up this person. I can't give up this addiction. It's utter ridiculousness. Because God sold everything in order to be able to redeem you and I. How much more should we be saying, Lord, what do I have? I only have rags, right? I got a couple sticks, a couple cents. I got nothing in my pocket. Of course, I'll give all of that up for you. The elder continues. And again, don't lose track here. It's not a strange looking lamb. He says, this lamb bearing marks of slaughter, right? He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, John trying to describe this in human terms. Looking upon the lamb, he could see radiating and emanating from him his omnipotence and his omniscience. You see, horns on an animal speak of power and might. Sort of the king of the deer, right? The biggest antlers or the elk. Whoever has the biggest horns is the king of that group. And here, speaking of seven horns, it's the number of completion, the number of perfection, meaning that Jesus has perfect might. Perfect strength, complete power and might and omnipotence. The seven eyes, again, completeness, perfection, speak of his omniscience. How the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world. Able to see all of heaven, all of earth, all of under the earth, all of time. All at once. Verse 7, this lamb, right? The lion and the lamb. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And again, we need both the lamb and the lion. We would have no access to the lion if it were not for the lamb. We need his sacrifice. Without his perfect sacrifice, we have zero access to the throne room of God. However, after that lamb, we need that lion to continue to be the conqueror of all humanity, right? To continue to guard us, to continue to protect us, to continue to be there, to rule and reign for all of eternity. We need the lion and the lamb. Verse 7, right, he comes and now he takes the scroll and the sigh of relief there, right, for John. What does that mean? That means no more crying, means no more sin, no more temptation, no more evil. That God is about to pour out his wrath on earth so that then the kingdom of Jesus can be ushered in. And you could remember the strong angel, he looked all over the earth. Those under the earth and those in heaven and only one of them was worthy to open the scroll. It reminds us, if you're quick, you could turn to Philippians chapter 2. And there in Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses similar terminology here as John did in Revelation chapter 5 but there in Philippians chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 it says therefore God has God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and here it is of those in heaven of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, there's only one worthy of our worship. Again, we, we, a lot of references back to chapter four. We talked about the idea that we become whatever we worship. We slowly but surely become like whatever idol we're worshiping. Uh, In the Old Testament, I believe, God says, Hey, you've become like the idols you've worshiped, dumb and blind and hard of hearing. Because you're worshiping these idols. They can't do anything. You literally made them, and yet you're becoming just like them. What are you worshiping? The only safe person to worship is Jesus Christ. Because as we become more and more like him, we become better fathers, better mothers, better workers, better bosses. Our whole life, the doors open up for life and life abundantly. But if we worship anything else, our marriages, our kids, our jobs, our vacations, our hobbies, our city, whatever the case may be. If we worship anything else, then what you're reaping is the wages of sin, which is death. Again, what are we worshiping? Because there was no one in heaven on earth or under the earth worthy to open the scroll and only Jesus is, then one day every knee will bow of every single living creature. Every single human being that has ever existed will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Again, the lamb grabbing the scroll, it's great news for us who are believers, but this is terrible news for unbelievers. I Think of it in the daily reading, right? We're going through Deuteronomy, how he puts before us a life and death, blessing and a curse. And if we bow the knee now to Jesus Christ, then we get to be adopted into the family. And we get to rule and reign with him for all of eternity. We get to be with him there in heaven. But if we continue to harden our hearts and say, God, you are wrong. If we continue to harden our hearts and say, Jesus, you are wrong. The Bible, what the Bible says, it is wrong. One day, you will have to realize that it is all true, but then it will be too late. There's no adoption. There's no ruling and reigning with him. It's being apart from him in hell for all of eternity. It's being in solitude and alone with nothing but thoughts and regrets and torture for the rest of Of eternity, Again, there's a great sword there. It's great news to the believer. It's terrible news to the unbeliever. But Jesus, his desire, his will, is that we'd be there with him. That's his desire. Throughout the Gospels, over and over and over again, you see Jesus saying, not my will, but his be done. My will is the will of the Father. The will of the Father, that's bread, that's meat for me, that's substance for me. You see Jesus saying that time and time and time again throughout the four Gospels. There's only one time where Jesus talks about his will and his desire. And you know what it is? He says, Lord, I desire, I will that they be with me, that we would together be in your presence. That's Jesus' only desire, is that you would be with him. God wills that no one would perish, but that all would have everlasting life. He loves you. He cares for you. Verse 8, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each having a harp, and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. At the notion, at the seeing, at the watching of Jesus taking the scroll, immediately the four cherubim, the representatives of all of church history, right? They fall down there before the Lamb. This is what worship looks like. Worship is singing, again, loudly to the Lord, and it's humility. Humility. Every once in a while, you'll get someone saying, I just want to dance in worship, right? I just want to dance like David danced. Right? You get that every once in a while from someone in worship. Well, David was dancing during a parade. So if you have a parade for Jesus or at a concert for Jesus, man, break it down. Go crazy for Jesus, right? (laughs) However, there's no part in Scripture where during a church service or worshiping God the Father or the Lamb that people are busting a move. It just doesn't happen. It's just not in Scripture. So again, if you're at a parade or a concert, man, go crazy for Jesus. But in worship, biblical worship that we're going to see all throughout heaven, the only posture you really see is people flat on their faces. That's the only type of worship you see. You see just emotion gripping them of how great he is and how worthless I am. That's what true worship is, right? You're attributing worth due to him. It says each of them have a harp. This is not just a harp, but more of a guitar. It's an instrument in the Greek played with the hand or with a pick. This is where we get that idea, right? Those old cartoons. Everybody in heaven has their own personal cloud and their personal halo and their personal harp. Not the case whatsoever. Then it says that there's golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's where some in the Catholic Church get the idea that our prayers need to go to the saints before they go to God. Does this mean that the elders or the four cherubim are the ones who receive our prayers? No, right? The nine o'clock did better. No, not at all. Not whatsoever. Right? As Paul would say, certainly not. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Only one mediator. We don't pray to the saints. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to our moms or our dads. We pray to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, to God the Holy Spirit, the three people of the Trinity. Jesus is the only mediator. However, what we should gather from this is how much God the Father cares for us. There's certain things that we keep that to someone else would be complete rubbish or worthlessness But because of who's given it to us or the time or season it was given to us, we keep that for probably longer than we should, right? Maybe you've gone through that season. You're decluttering your house and you find this shoebox with all of these old papers and you come to the fork in the road. Do I throw this away now? Or do I put this in the box to come to this fork in the road once again later on, right? Do I throw this away now five years later? Do I throw this away now, right? And it all depends, If you're there cleaning and you're a mom or a dad here and you have your son or daughter's five-year-old kindergarten, Father's Day coloring, right? I love daddy. Daddy's number one. You're like crying, right? You keep it and you don't get rid of it. And I believe this is what's being revealed to us how God in his throne room with all of this glory. With all of this radiance, with these four living creatures, with the 24 elders, with the host of all the angels and all the elders, there besides him, he has our prayers. Again, how much God cares for you and I. Sometimes we get a bad picture of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Right? We think it's like good cop, bad cop, and the Holy Spirit is kind of like the helper in between, right? Not the case. God the Father loves you. God the Father loves you, but God the Father is also pure justice. So he provides a way and a sacrifice for justice to be served, but for us to be in his presence. And that's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A couple of scriptures just, again, revealing to us how God cares about us. Psalm 141 verse 2, David says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. All throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, the altar of incense is talking about our prayers ascending up into the heavens. So we know his prayers, our prayers are near him. Psalm 56 verse 8, David says, you number my wanderings and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Again, if no one else sees our pain or our crying our agony, God the Father sees it. Psalm 139, verse 17 and 18 tells us how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. How he's thinking about you. God, with all that's going on, is thinking about you and I. Finally, Luke, 20, uh, Luke chapter 12 Verse 7 says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And he tells us, don't have fear, don't have anxiety. I care about you. I even know how many hairs are on your head. For some of us, it's easier than others, right? But he knows the very numbers of, of hairs on your head, right? Or lack thereof. He knows it. He sees it. He cares about you and me. We go back to verse 9, Revelation chapter 5. They sing a new song, right? Is this a brand new song? Never have been sung before? Perhaps in heaven? Again, that's where we get the idea. Perhaps John is taken in the spirit and then taken in time to the moment that Jesus takes the scroll. Important thing for us to know, as Jesus is taking the scroll, the elders are there. The church representatives are there before God's wrath is poured out on earth. Another picture of a pre-tribulation rapture. Before God is pouring out His wrath, we are there with Him singing this new song. And this new song again points to something that's fresh and new. And heaven is filled with worship and it's always fresh and new. Again, there's a warning to us. If the cross has become stale to us, if the death of Jesus Christ has become stale to us, if worship has become stale to us, be careful. It's like you hear the husband or the wife, oh, my marriage is just stale. Whose fault is that really, right? I was just getting stale. I don't feel the same way I used to feel, right? Nothing's changed. The truth, the vows, the promises, they're all there. It's just you're not connected. You're not pouring into that marriage. And we need to be careful in our relationship with Jesus Christ if we have one that we're pouring into it, that we're spending time with him. Worship is just what's naturally transpiring in heaven. That's why it's so important for worship to naturally happen in our hearts. That we don't just need someone to coerce us, right? We don't need a Sunday school teacher bribing us with goldfish to worship louder, right? That, that should be happening in our hearts already. Out of gratitude and thanksgiving, this is what naturally happens in heaven. The worship light is not coming on in heaven saying, hey, it's time nice. to no. worship Jesus. This is just what happens. And the more mindful we are, the more grateful we are for all that Jesus has done for us, the more we consider our sin and how evil we are and how our righteousness is just filthy rags, the more we are going to naturally worship. It's a new thing. It's a fresh thing. One of the ancient church fathers, Victorinus, he says, this is a new thing that the Son of God should become man. It is a new thing to ascend into the heavens with the body. It is a new thing to give remission of sins to men. It is a new thing to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is a new thing to receive the priesthood of sacred observance. It is a new thing to look for a kingdom of unbound promise. And these are all new things in terms of human history. So, what's the lyrics to this new song? Verse 9 You are worthy. To take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Again, they are ascribing worth to Jesus Christ. They're saying, You are the only one who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Is he not worthy of our worship? Is he not worthy for us to let go of our pride or our fear of man and sing praises to God? Here at church, in your car alone, and while you're in the line at Publix, is he not worthy of our worship? Then it says, for you were slain. That's talking about the brutal pain and murder and death that Jesus went through. Again, it wasn't something quick. It wasn't something easy. It was brutal. I pray these two things God would continue to reveal to us more and more. All that Jesus has done for us in the past. All that Jesus is currently doing today. And all that Jesus is going to one day do for each and every one of us. I pray you would be praying, Lord, reveal that to me. Right now, Lord, I can tell I've grown and I'm just apathetic, Lord. I can kind of care less. I'm just thinking about the burritos and burrito bowls at the end of service, right? Or whatever the case may be. Lord, do that work in me. You are worthy. David Guzik says, Roman emperors during the time of the Apostle John would be celebrated upon their arrival with a Latin expression, dignus, which is translated, you are worthy. And here the true ruler of the world will one day be honored. It's important. Maybe you're watching the news and your emotions go up and down. It's important. God is seated upon the throne. He's not anxious. He's not scared. He's not freaking out. And remember, who owns the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords? It's Jesus Christ. You can write down Revelation seventeen fourteen or Revelation nineteen sixteen. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful, Revelation 17, 14. He's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he was slain, he went through a brutal death for us, and then he has redeemed us to God by his blood. The idea here, redeemed, is a slave being purchased from another slave owner. And that's what God has done for us. And the only price that could be paid for that is the blood of his only begotten son. Again, do these terms affect us? Do we feel broken when we hear that God had to buy us back from Satan? Is there joy in our heart that God has bought us back from Satan, bought us back from sin, bought us back from the wages of sin and death? And he's redeemed us. Whenever we sing that last song that we sung, right? And talk about the ransom his slave. That affect us whatsoever. Or we sort of think, ah, I deserve heaven. I'm pretty great and awesome, right? Does it affect us? Does it, again, create any emotion within us? Out of every tribe and tongue and people, our nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Again, there's no room for division in heaven, Of any means, whether it's a political party, whether it's race, whether it's color, nationality, economic group, political party. There's no room for division or separation in heaven. That's why oftentimes when we gather together and everybody's worshiping together, it's sort of a taste of heaven, right? Different tribes, different nations, different tongues, all singing in unison to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I pray that none of us would be so earthly minded that these groups define your life. Are these the groups that define your life? Because heaven wise, there's only two groups there's the sons of God and the sons of Satan, those are the only two groups. And our role as sons of God is to go out and make disciples. It's to go out and try to win over as much of these sons and daughters of Satan as we can. Because we were once sons and daughters of Satan. But we've been redeemed. He's paid the ransom. He's paid the price. And that's the only division that God sees. Sons of God... Sons of Satan. Verse 11 Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You mathematicians, don't pull out your calculator and start saying, how many people are in heaven, right? In the Greek, it's myriads of myriads. And that was the biggest numerical uh, expression at the time. Today, we'd say millions upon millions, or I guess if you're in government spending, trillions upon trillions, right? Or whatever the case may be, whatever your number is for lots and lots. That's what John is saying here. There's a, a number that we can't even count or fathom, There in heaven. In verse 12, again, saying with a loud voice, heaven's going to be a loud place. No one's shushing anyone, right? You're saying it too loud. What are you doing, right? There's nothing like that in heaven. They're worshiping all together with a loud voice. No one's forcing them. No one's making them. It's the natural response of their heart in view of who the lamb is, in view of who God is, and in view of what they are not. And what do they say? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Again, Jesus says that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And some of us, we can sing this song. Some of us, we can recite this verse. But it's the fruit of our life, giving power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing to God, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? What comes out of your mouth in 2022, out of the abundance of the social media, right? The heart speaks. What's the evidence of the overflow of your heart? Is there any strength, any glory, any blessing being given to the Lord? Or is it all about you and a bunch of unworthy things that you and I worship? Every creature is worshiping Him. And it's important to know at the end of verse 13, the one who sits on the throne... And the lamb together are receiving the same amount of worship. This is why it is so important. It is monumental that a true Christian believes that Jesus is not just the son of God, but he is one part of the Trinity. Jesus is God. He's not a created being after God. He's not the angel. He's not Satan's brother. He's not a prophet. No, Jesus is God. If not in heaven, there'd be idolatry and blasphemy taking place each and every day. That's why it's important. It is essential for us to know the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and knowing that he is God. So to our friends and family members that say, hey, we are the same, and yet their view of Jesus is different, they are worshiping a different Jesus. And the only Jesus to get to heaven is the Jesus that is one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, he says, depend upon it, my hearer. You will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. They are all doing it there. You will have to come to it. And if you entertain the notion that he is a mere man or that he is anything less than God, I am afraid you will have to begin at the beginning and learn what true religion means. You have a poor foundation to rest upon. I could not trust my soul with a mere man or believe in an atonement made by a mere man. I must see God himself putting his hand to so gigantic a work. Again, he is God. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. And we need to begin worshiping him today because that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. If you don't like worship, I don't know why you're going to want to go to heaven. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me, Right? Basically, mostly what we're going to be doing. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be doing other things, but a lot of it is worshiping him. Finally, verse 14, then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Again, they fall down and worship him. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only response in us. It's just in humility, in brokenness, fall down and worship him. Again, in closing, I think there's two main questions here. One is, have you forgotten who's seated upon the throne? Have you forgotten? Maybe in this week you've got anxiety, fear, or depression. You're looking at the news or you're looking at your current state in life and you're just freaking out and you're throwing yourself into a tailspin. Remember who's seated upon the throne. Remember who still has the scroll in his hand and the only one that can grab that scroll. The second thing, which is... Equal importance is who or what are you ascribing worth to? What are you investing in? I don't want you to make that poor investment that a year from now, a week from now, a day from now, you're saying, man, what a waste of time. What a wasted investment of my time, of my money, of my heart, of my emotions, of my kids' time, my kids' heart, my kids' emotions. Is this not worthy of it all? We go through different seasons in life where we're saying, what's more valuable, my time or my money, right? See, I got no money, so I guess that's what's more valuable right now, right? I got no time, I guess that's what's more valuable right now. What are we spending all of our time on? What are we spending all of our money on? You are ascribing worth to whatever that thing is. Whatever you wake up and you're thinking about right away, whatever you're constantly researching and looking at on your phone or on your computer... Whatever your bills are constantly going to, wherever that paycheck is going, that credit card is going to, that is what you're worshiping. Again, there's only one who is worthy to open the scroll. There's only one who has conquered all of sin, all of death, and who will one day rule and reign over all the earth. I pray that you and I, we ascribe our worship to the only one who's worthy of it all. So hey, let's go ahead and pray. Worship team, you can come up. Pastors, if you could come up, and uh, we'll pray. We'll close in worship. Lord, we just love you, and Lord, we just thank you for these pictures into heaven, Lord. Help us to be that wise steward, God. Help us to count the cost and follow you, Lord. Help us to count the cost and to build a home, to build a, a home whose foundation is built upon you, Lord. That there won't be any crumbling. There won't be any destruction, Lord. That we will be able to withstand the storms that may come, Lord. And we know, Jesus, you told us that's not just by hearing your word or hearing teachings. It's by doing it. It's by being obedient to it, God. So, Lord, just create in us that clean heart, Lord. Create in us, Lord, the eyes that see and the ears that hear, Lord. Create in us that heart that is broken and humble and that understands Lord, what your word is trying to show us, God. And Lord, help us to be quick to repent. Lord, help us to be quick to be doers of your word and not hearers only, Lord. Whatever we're holding on to, Lord, whatever relationship, Lord, whatever hobby, whatever tool or enjoyment, Lord, that we're holding on to, God, that we are truly worshiping, God, Lord, just break our hearts, Lord. Open our eyes to see that, Lord, we need to Worship you more and more, Lord, and the blessings that come from worshiping you and you alone, Lord. So, Lord, create in us a heart of worship, Lord. Help us to not fear man, Lord, but to fear you alone. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.